Well, this morning, we finish up a three-part sermon series on the Protestant Reformation. The purpose of this series has been twofold. First, it has been a way for us to recognize and to celebrate the Reformation, what God did and how this 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses to the castle church doors in Wittenberg, Germany, in response to the selling of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church, is a great moment in church history. It is an event considered by many to be the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation, making it part of our own theological ancestry. Second, and just as important, this series has given us an opportunity to again consider the ongoing importance of the truths rediscovered and reclaimed during the Reformation. I love church history, and church history matters. And so this has kind of been a convergence of these two realities, looking at at the Reformation and how the Reformation matters today and will always matter. We began this series two Sundays ago with Romans 1.17 because it was the passage that God used to turn the lights on for Martin Luther, showing him that justification before a holy and righteous God is not in any way by works, but that sinners are declared righteous by God through faith in Christ alone. The Reformation was not about starting something new, but about returning to what is true, the word of God, the Bible, and what God reveals in the scriptures about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Reformation was a movement back to the Bible as the final authority for Christ's church. This movement back to the Bible was needed because the Roman Catholic Church elevated tradition and the Pope to a place of equal authority with God's word. The Protestant Reformation put God's word back in its rightful place as the final and ultimate authority in the church and was focused, this Reformation, on getting the Bible into the hands and ultimately the hearts of people. Well, last Sunday, Pastor Jesse, preaching on Galatians 1, showed us why the Reformation still matters today. Some have jokingly approached me, especially my community group, and said, you always seem to give the really hard sermons to other preachers. Now listen, (laughs) I would have preached that sermon, but I had this wedding event. There's some people in our church uh, getting married, and it was out of town. So let me just set the record straight. I had no intention of not preaching this sermon, but it just so happened that it fell uh, on the same weekend that I was going to be away. Pastor Jesse did a wonderful job. He showed us how despite the various ecumenical movements that try to minimize the differences between Protestants and Catholics, we evangelical Protestant Christians are still protesting the Roman Catholic Church's view of her authority as being equal with Scripture and their condemnation of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We love our Catholic friends and neighbors and family members, but we disagree on the gospel. Pastor Jesse then reminded us that because we love Catholics and others who disagree with us on the gospel, we're to seek to share the good news of justification by faith in Christ alone. We're to pray for God to open their eyes and to change their hearts just like he did in us. Even if we grew up in a Protestant church, at some point, God did what only he can do. He opened our eyes to see Christ rightly as our only hope. He removed the the thought that we can add anything or participate in any way to our salvation. 
Well, in this final sermon in this Reformation series, we will look at the importance of the Reformation in the future. So not just that the Reformation matters today, and it does, but that it will always matter in the future. This is the so what, now what sermon in this series. The main text for this morning's sermon is 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, and you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 996. Now, if you're one of the, the few, the five or so, who, re, who read the bulletin uh, before the service, if you made your way all the way to the back of the bulletin, you'll notice that the text that I just gave you is not the text listed as today's sermon text. The reason for this is because the bulletins were printed a little bit earlier in the week, and I was wrestling on the text that's in the bulletin and this text. So I was going to use one of the two, and, and I was kind of going back and forth. And at that moment, I thought it would be that text. But as I continued to wrestle through and think about the text, the two, I landed on 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. So it's not a misprint. It's my bad. It's my issue. I, I was wrestling until, uh, until after the bulletins were printed. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for God's help. God, you are the awesome, glorious, triune God. And we have come to worship you in spirit and truth. We want to adore you this morning. We want to treasure Christ. We want to make much of you. We have not come simply to go through some religious routine. We have not come to appease our friends, our neighbors, a family member. Ultimately, we have come, or we should have come, to worship you, the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings. We confess that so often we are distracted by the things of this world, even good things, that keep us from enjoying and treasuring you, the greatest gift in the gospel. We confess that we are often prone to wander mentally and emotionally and spiritually from Christ. And so we pray that you would use the preaching of your word this morning to, to refresh us, to revive us, to, to sustain us, to feed us, your people, spiritual sustenance. We give you thanks, God, because you are a patient, gracious, loving, kind God who even as we stray is constantly bringing us back to the reality that, that Christ has done the work, that we are your people, that we exist not for our own end, but to bring you glory, to treasure Christ, and to live for Jesus. Thank you, God, for this day, this time to hear the word, to, to pray, to rejoice in the gospel. And we do now pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of those who are in this place who are not trusting in Christ, that you would do what only you can do, show them your son Jesus and his finished work, that the cross and the resurrection is, is at the heart of Christianity, and they need to trust in Jesus. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in this church and in other churches who are struggling this morning 
who are overwhelmed by the circumstances of, of their lives and, and are frustrated and who, or who are tempted to, to look to other things than Christ to make it through, who are battling great hardship physically, emotionally, spiritually. Father, use us, use your word, use others, use their church to encourage them, to point them back to the gospel. And Father, we pray all of this because we need your help. We are people always in need of Christ, of your spirit, of your word. And so we pray these things for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been around Woodridge for a while, or if you know a bit about the Reformation, you are likely very familiar with the five solas. We refer to the truths that are found in the five solas in some way, shape, or form every single Sunday. And I, and I thought about that statement. Is that true? I don't want to make exaggerations, but I thought about it. It's true. We're always talking about these truths that are found in the five solas in some way, shape, or form. A few years ago, we even did an entire sermon series on them. The five solas are Latin phrases that summarize the important truths that were reclaimed during the Reformation. Truths that directly respond to specific perversions and errors that were, and as we saw last Sunday, are still being taught by the Roman Catholic Church. They are sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. We're always preaching and teaching and coming back to these important truths because they protect the gospel like scripture alone, the gospel that has been entrusted to us, and also because they are at the very heart of the good news that God has for sinners about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all about God's grace faith alone, Christ alone, and it's all about the glory of God. But there's another Latin phrase that you might not be familiar with, even if you're familiar with the five solas, one that specifically addresses the matter before us this morning of the ongoing importance of the Reformation in the future. It is semper reformanda, translated from Latin into English, and I don't know much more Latin. I can kind of figure it up. I, I took Spanish in elementary school, so every once in a while you're like, okay, I, this kind of seems to have some connections to Spanish, but, but this is it. Semper reformanda. I'm out, I'm out. Six phrases. That's pretty much all I know. Well, translated into English from the Latin, it means always reforming. This phrase is traced back not to the 16th century reformers, but to those in the 17th century who followed in Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and Ulrich Zwingli's footsteps by preaching and teaching and holding to the very same central core doctrines of the Reformation that Scripture alone must be the final and ultimate authority in the church, and that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. This phrase, always reforming, captures why the truths rediscovered during the Reformation matter today and why they will always matter in the future. But what does always reforming mean and how are we to do this? Well, the phrase semper reformanda, are, it's really only two words that come from a longer statement. In a 2009 Table Talk magazine article, Michael Horton professor of systematic theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary, explains that the entire statement translated into English from Latin, and I won't try to do it in Latin, is this. 
the reformed church is always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. Horton then goes on to state in that article that although the reformers themselves did not use this slogan, it certainly reflects what they were up to, and I would argue what the Bible teaches. Notice here what the agent, what the source, what the cause and the means is of the ongoing reforming in Christ's church. The word of God. The word of God. And this fits with the Reformation truth that Scripture alone is to be the final and ultimate authority in the church and on the matter of the importance of the Reformation in the future. This phrase then helps us understand why the truths reclaimed during the Reformation will always matter. We must always, church, individually and corporately, be reforming according to God's word. This also brings us to the first two verses of this morning's text, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. I have it underlined in my notes. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now this charge is full of God-centered passion. Now, to be clear, to set the context, this is a charge from the Apostle Paul directly to a local pastor in a church. So there are some things that especially or explicitly apply to Timothy and then to the preacher in a church. But my argument this morning is that there is also truth here and there's application for us as we consider the ongoing work of reformation in the church today. So recognizing that... This is a God-centered passion, passionate plea from the Apostle Paul who knows that he is nearing the end of his ministry. If you read further down in verse 6 and 7, Paul makes it clear. He knows his time on earth is nearing completion. He's going to leave the world. He's going to die for the gospel soon. And so he's given this charge to the younger Timothy who had been sent by Paul to Ephesus to continue the gospel ministry that Paul and others had begun in the church. And so for this reason, we might describe the work that Timothy was to do in Ephesus as the work of reforming the church according to the word of God. Paul had preached the gospel and others had started the work. And now Timothy was there to continue the reforming work that was to be done by the word. The seriousness of the task is seen in Paul's charge. Verse 1, before he lays out the plan, he reminds Timothy that they are all in the presence of God. Friends, everything that we do is seen by God. Everything. We forget that sometimes. You know, we, we're busy with our lives. We're building our careers. We're raising families. Well, some of us, we're married or we're single. We've got our plan. And this reality that, that we are before the face of God, Coram Deo. Okay, I've thrown another Latin phrase in there for you. Coram Deo. We are before the face of God in everything that we do. He is seeing what we do. And not only that, but Paul reminds Timothy that God will judge all things. The risen and triumphant Christ Jesus who conquered death and right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father is judge over all so this is how Paul starts this encouraging charge to Timothy, this younger pastor. God's watching. He sees you. He's, he's paying attention to what you're doing. 
And he is the judge over all. Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He will determine who will receive eternal life and who will receive eternal death. And it will be by faith in Christ. Now it might seem as if Paul is trying to scare Timothy. These are some heavy words here. Hey, remember, God's watching what you're doing. And he's going to judge. As if he's saying something like, remember, God is watching you, so don't mess this up, Timothy. As if he's doing something like what some parents do with Santa. You better be nice. You better be good for goodness sake, because if you're not, there's going to be some coal in your stockings. You're not getting the nice presents that you want. You wanted some Legos, you're not getting Legos, you're getting broccoli. I mean, that's kind of the threat that, that looms in some homes with Santa. But that's not at all what Paul is doing here. Paul is giving Timothy a valuable reminder that is to strengthen and focus Timothy on the important God-given task that he, and I would say that this implication filters over into the rest of the church. Timothy wasn't just to do this work all on his own. Every Christian, everybody who loves Christ, who trusts in Christ alone and loves his church has been called to do. In, In his commentary on 2 Timothy, Kent Hughes writes concerning this passage The realization that our service will be judged by the servant of all servants is jolting. This is not negative for the faithful servant, but is rather a source of added electricity. I love that. Electricity. This will wake you up in the morning, Christian. You're called to continue the work that Christ began, the apostles have laid the foundation on, and ever since the church has been doing Obey God, fight sin, treasure Christ, and live for eternity. And you know what? The reality is that this can be really hard in every single culture and society, and we know that by our experience. But friends, God is watching us. He sees our faithfulness to his word, the things that we do for him in secret, the love that we have for the gospel and for God's people, Christ's church. He sees it all. He doesn't miss anything. And the work that Timothy was to do to strengthen the church and the work that he, he's called the pastor to do today, but again, this filters into the church. It's all worth it. It matters. The energy that we are to put into this work, the relationships that we are to build that can be really difficult sometimes. It's a lot easier, and it's not really, but we think at least, to follow Christ on our own, to be the Rambo Christian, to just do this Christian thing on our own. Start bringing people into the mix. They start telling you, you know, good things that you need to hear that you don't want to hear. It gets harder. The struggles, the hardships, the misunderstandings that can take place in the church, the reproving, the rebuking, the exhorting, having patience and teaching. When it's really hard, it's all worth it. And why? Because Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus loves and he cares and he protects his church. The church matters because she belongs to Christ. The church is his body, his bride, his prize. Church, this charge from Paul to Timothy reminds us of the importance of our individual lives and our corporate life as the church always being reformed according to God's word. We're not to be cool with apathy, with boredom, with self-centeredness in our own hearts and in the church. God calls every generation of Christians to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, and preach the word. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, we must fight the good fight of the faith and guard the the deposit that has been entrusted to us. 
But here's the thing. Many have taken this charge to mean only the pastor or a select few are to do the work of reforming in the church. Now, again, I agree that this is directly to Timothy and it has major implications for every Christian pastor. And yet, what the thought of making this exclusively the work of one man, one group of elders in a church has done is encourage mediocrity in the church. And here's how. I was listening to a, a, a little clip by a pastor and he made this great point. He said that, that so often in the church when, when somebody loves theology, when they start reading church history, when they dig into doctrine and they wrestle with the reality of God's sovereignty and salvation, when they, when they see that their, their being a Christian is not ultimately tied back to a decision they made, it's a decision that God made. When they start wrestling with all these things, you know what the church often does? is kind of set them aside and say, you need to go to seminary. <laughs> You're talking about deep things that, that, that are too heavy and too, too, too over our heads. But the reality is that every single Christian is to be a theologian. Now, there's going to be differing levels and capacities, but from the housewife to the construction worker to the businessman to the doctor to the preacher, all of us are to be digging into the word richly and enjoying the treasures that are in the word and a part of this work that God has called us to do, to be reformed according to his word. We don't simply send those who are digging into theology away to seminary. We fan that flame and we say, teach the class of Sunday school kids in fifth grade who need to hear about the Trinity, who need to hear about the divinity of Christ, who need to hear that, that sin will lead to destruction. Grow and mature so that you can be the godly woman or man that God has called you to be. That should be the norm in the church. We are to live in light of the reality that God is with us, that he is watching us, and that he will judge the living and the dead. And for us Christians, this is not, or it should not be, a scary thought. It's an awesome truth. The sovereign God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, has not only freed you from slavery to sin and saved you from his wrath by pouring his wrath out on his son, Jesus Christ. He has also called you, Christian, to take part in the great work of strengthening, building, reforming his church according to his word. Not according to your word, not according to your methods or your thoughts, but according to the word of God. This always reforming is a glorious work of eternal significance. And this is what we are to do with our lives. Make disciples, preach the gospel. And in a sense, you can cover all that in the reforming work according to God's word that we are called to do. It's all part of it. And Christian, if you don't, here's the thing, you'll have less joy. If you make your life all about building your kingdom, your, your portfolio, your career, you will miss out on the joy and the calling that God has called us to do to make much of Christ. Paul's charge also speaks of how long this reforming work will go on. Was it just a 16th century Protestant Reformation thing and then we just kind of coast? No, we're to do it until Jesus' appearing. That is, until Jesus returns, which Paul describes in Titus 2, 13 and 14, as our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
This blessed hope of Christ's imminent return is what awaits Timothy and you and me and every other Christian. What a glorious day that will be when Christ returns. But until he returns and he brings his heavenly kingdom to earth, there is God-glorifying, reforming work for us to do in our own hearts and corporately as a church. I love, I love talking with, with older Christians and those Christians who are facing hardship physically in this life because this reality flows from them so easily. They don't want to waste time. They want to talk about Jesus. They know, they, they have this, uh, it, it's true for all of us, but, but they feel it in their bones that time is fleeting and that their lives, and, and, unless Christ returns, will end in death and then they will be with Christ. So they will not ultimately be dead, but they will be alive in Christ. And so they live differently. They talk differently. They have put their hope in the things of Christ, the things of God. And that is what we are to be like too. Whether we feel it or not, that's true. And this ongoing reforming work is described in verse 2 with five imperatives or commands. But the first command is what the rest of the commands flow out of and relate back to. And so it will be our main focus with the rest of our time this morning. That command is that Timothy would preach the word. This is how the church in Ephesus began. The apostles came and they preached the word and a church was formed. It's how all of the first centuries, first century churches started. The apostles went out and, and those who were sent by the apostles went out and they preached the word rightly. This is how the church spread in the centuries that followed. The word of God was rightly preached. This is how the, sex, the 16th century Protestant Reformation happened. The word of God was rightly preached. Now, some of you will remember this great quote that I shared with you two Sundays ago from Luther explaining how he believed the Reformation happened. But if not, if you weren't here, here it is again. It's so good. It makes the same point about the word being preached. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Church, it's the word of God going out and the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached that does the reforming work in us and Christ church. And this is a continual work. We need to hear the gospel every single Sunday because we're tempted to put our hope in ourselves or in something other than Christ. The non-Christian needs to hear the gospel. The Christian needs to hear the gospel. And this is why in 2 Timothy, a letter that is referred to as one of the, the pastoral epistles, because Paul is mainly speaking to the young pastor, Timothy, Paul is constantly pointing Timothy to the power of the word of God. In 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here Paul says that though he is in chains, he's, he's a prisoner because he's been preaching the gospel, the word of God is not bound. It is not in chains. In chains. And so what does Paul do? He keeps on preaching 
and teaching and sharing God's word. Because through the word going forth, the elect, that is those who God has determined to save, will hear the truth about salvation in Christ Jesus alone, and they will receive the eternal glory that awaits them. Because of this focus on the word in 2 Timothy, it shouldn't surprise us that that one of the clearest passages on the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the word of God, is found in 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, 16 and 17. But I want to start just a little earlier in verse 12 because it describes the difficulty that will come to those who are committed to God's word. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh, that says so much to us, 21st century church. If we believe the Bible, we teach the Bible, we seek to be reformed by the word of God, we must expect that there will be persecution. The Bible says it will be the case. And if there isn't in some way, shape, or form, some pushback, some rejection, then then we need to consider if we're really preaching the Bible. It's not that we aim to offend. I I have no desire to just simply offend people. No way. I am a people pleaser by nature, by heart. I'm a mama's boy. I don't want anybody to ever leave the church feeling bad because of what I've said. But here's the reality. If we're going to preach the word, proclaim the gospel, I will not offend. The Bible will offend. And what it will lead to is conviction of sin, false gospels being exposed, and people seeing Jesus as glorious and their only hope for salvation. And so we will be persecuted. Christian, at some point you will be called foolish, ridiculous, backwards, somebody who belongs in the backwoods in modern culture. The Bible says it. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Going on, well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you heard it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the Old Testament there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So where does knowledge of salvation come from? It doesn't come from nature. Yes, creation testifies to the glory of God, but not on how we are to be saved. It's the word that reveals that. The sacred writings, both the Old and the New Testament, speak of Christ. They lead to Christ. As Romans 10, 17 states, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And why is the word so powerful? Why are we to be sticklers on the word of God being preached, proclaimed, taught? It's because of where the word, the Bible, comes from. Verse 16 tells us that God, the Holy Spirit, is the divine author of Scripture. Yes, men wrote it down, But what we have in the scriptures was breathed out by God. These are not merely the words of men. These are the words of God breathed out. Yes, the Spirit used the unique personalities and traits and giftings and abilities of those who recorded the scriptures, whether it's Moses or Peter or Paul. But it's ultimately, the word of God is ultimately from God, breathed out by the Spirit. 
And what does God use his word to do? He uses it to teach, to reprove, correct, train us in righteousness so that we might be complete and equipped for the work that he's called us to do. Church, there's, there's many good resources out there. Not all of them are rooted in scripture and not all of them contradict scripture. They can be used alongside it, but here's the reality. What we ultimately need, what we, what we ultimately must hear is the word of God. I love reading. I love reading the Puritans. I love reading Spurgeon. I, I love reading Calvin. I love reading these, these guys. But if all that was taken away right now, big burning was happening, Fahrenheit 451 style. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Just burning all these books. And all we had left was the Bible. We would be just fine. And what is being described in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and what is being described in this morning's text in 2 Timothy to explains what Semper Reformanda is all about, what it will look like for our lives as individual Christians and our corporate life together as a local church to be reformed according to the word of God. As the word goes forth, we will submit our lives, our practices, our traditions to scripture, and the word of God will continue to shape, change, grow, and sanctify us individually and corporately. To be a church always reforming according to God's word means that we will be a church of the word. People will come and say, I disagree what they have to say. They love Jesus and they love the Bible. That will be clear even to the non-Christian. That church, and, and this, this is to be true of all true churches, loves the Bible. Church, we will study it unashamedly, dig into theology. We will learn it. We will memorize it, especially key passages that teach us who God is, who we are apart from Christ, who we are in Christ, what sin is, how we are saved by faith in Christ alone. We will immerse ourselves in the word and be changed by it. Semper reformanda. Charles Spurgeon once described John Bunyan, the early Reformed Baptist preacher who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite books. Read it if you haven't. He described him as a man who, if pricked, would bleed, be blind. That is, he would bleed Bible. In the wake of the Reformation, which rediscovered the gospel that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that's what we are to be, church, a church that bleeds Bible. Bleeds Bible. We cannot get bored with the gospel. I have nothing better to tell you than about Jesus Christ and the implications of the reality that Jesus died for your sins and God raised him from the dead. And how now, because of that, you are forgiven of your sins. You have been born again if your faith is in him. That is the greatest news that you could ever hear for me or from anybody else. And the implications and the realities of that truth are to sink down into your heart on and on, over and over again, now and into eternity we find why Semper Reformanda is so necessary in verses 3 and 4 of this morning's passage. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We started this Reformation series to remember the 500th anniversary of the gospel truths of justification by faith and those other truths, uh, we, we had this, this Reformation series in response to that, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of that event. 
It was, it, it's still a response to the Catholic Church's teaching on the gospel. And yet here's the thing, church. This itching ears, this setting aside sound teaching has happened throughout all of history. It's not just a sec, uh, 16th century thing. We find it in Israel's history when after God freed them from slavery in Egypt, while Moses is up on the mountain getting the law of God, what are they doing? Crying out to Aaron to give them a golden calf so they can worship God with it. We see the same need for Semper Reformanda always in the prophets in the Old Testament who, who are often calling out the false prophets who the people, who the people ran to and loved to listen to. We see it in the New Testament when Jesus explained in the parable of the four soils that many who profess to be believers are really unbelievers. Just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they are. It's a work of God. We see it in how so much of the content of the epistles in the New Testament is aimed at and addresses false teaching. We have to talk about false teachers because the Bible is always talking about false teachers. People that steal God's people away, who distract them. Even if it's only for a year or two, they get distracted by a false teaching. And the Bible addresses that over and over. See, the reality is that people, even Christians at times, are drawn to what is new, what is popular, what is unique. One commentator points out that the phrase having itching ears can be literally translated as tickled in their hearing. Paul is saying that people get bored with the truth. Even the gospel. And they set, us, they set aside sound doctrine in search of teachers that will entertain them, agree with their opinions, ideas, and beliefs. Teachers that won't preach the Bible, but tell people exactly what they want to hear, as long as they give them their money. Think about how many of the popular preachers and so-called Christian authors today who are who are not unashamedly preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible, but they've made a career and a whole lot of money out of telling people what they want to hear about their money. You want more money? Here, here's what you need to do. Just pray for it and, and speak it into existence. Just pray it over and over and over again and call out to God on the, in the name of Jesus Christ that you deserve money. And that's, that, that's their message, the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. And these people are selling big books, filling stadiums. Why? Because people love to hear this crazy junk, this, these lies. People go to teachers or Bible preachers not to hear what the Bible says, but to hear about politics, to hear who they should vote for. They go there and, and they hear man-centered doctrines that tell people they're good, they're fine. In an ironic twist, the phrase semper reformanda has even wrongly been used by some who reject the inerrancy and authority of the Bible, to do this very thing. I was, again, this is later on in my study, so not the first thing I did, I did but I went to Google, and I typed in Semper Reformanda, and up pops this, this, this sermon by somebody who's used it, this, this phrase, Semper Reformanda. They've forgotten the whole phrase, or they just set it aside, or maybe they didn't even know it, to be an argument for the very things that the Bible condemns. See, these people view the phrase always reforming as a call for the church to always be changing in order to keep up with the times. The belief here is that the church needs to get on the right side of history. And here's kind of the silly thing. Who's writing this history? Who's writing this history? I believe God is the author of all history, author of salvation and history. So it doesn't matter what the, the history professors and the history writers say. 
if the church is on the wrong side or the right side. Sometimes we have been on the wrong side. You think of slavery, yes. Sin, we were wrong. But the reality is that, that when it comes to doctrine, truth, we have nothing to be ashamed about. See, the underlying belief in those who would, would approach always reforming this way is that unless the church changes its beliefs, that is, its doctrine, the church will become irrelevant and eventually die. This approach to Semper Reformanda explains why in the name of progress and even so-called love, whole denominations, as well as some independent and non-denominational churches, have abandoned what the Bible clearly teaches, embracing doctrines like universalism. Universalism is the belief that you don't have to trust in Christ alone. You don't have to trust in Christ. You, you, you end up having to just be a good person, and God will judge you based on you being a good person. And some historic, supposed Protestant churches have embraced universalism. They've also affirmed practices that God has in his word clearly called sin, like homosexuality, gay marriage, even abortion. These denominations and churches are described in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Friends, it is not loving to call, call good what God calls evil. That is not loving. That's called lying. And that is sin. The Son of God came from heaven to earth, was born a man. He lived a sinless, obedient, righteous life, then died in our place so that all sinners who repent and trust in Christ would be declared righteous by God, based not on their works, but on Christ's finished works, his righteousness. Then Jesus was raised from the dead so that all who, have, who by faith are united to Christ will, like Jesus, be bodily raised from the dead. The gospel is not that we humans are fine and that we just need to hear some, some, some nice things, that our sin is not a big deal. The good news is that though we are sinners deserving of God's righteous wrath, God is merciful gracious and loving and for his glory and out of love the triune God of the Bible has made a way for us sinners you and I and everyone else to be saved and that way the only way is through the person and work of Jesus Christ what people need to hear from the church is not that they are okay because without Christ they're not okay Jesus has come to set those captive to sin free, to make atonement for our sin, so that we would be reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ alone. Yes, God is love. God is love. And he demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the apex, the climax of God's love. Semper Reformanda is not a call for the church to change its doctrine in order to survive. That is a faithless response to the unbelieving world, the exact opposite of what the world needs to hear from us and get from us. The, the, the non-Christian doesn't need to come to church to hear what non-Christians believe. They need to hear from the church what the Bible has to say about God and salvation. Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16, 18 help us see how silly this idea is. There Jesus says to Peter that the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. So church, if the gates of hell can't prevail against true gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing, saved by the cross of Christ and born again by the sovereign hand of God, church, then why would we ever think that in order to survive, 
in order to continue to exist, in order to give people what they need to hear, we, the church, need to set aside what the Bible teaches. If the gates of hell can't prevail against Christ's church, then no culture, no society, whether it be modern or postmodern or post-Christian or any other power, can prevail against Christ's church. No one can stop Christ's church because Christ's church is Christ's church. He purchased her. He will keep her. He will sustain her. And the means by which we are to continue going forward is the word. In fact, history proves the opposite to be true. It is when a church is being reformed by the world rather than the word that it's only a matter of time before that church ceases to be a true church and eventually dies. You only have to look at those those denominations that split in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and and the ones since, because theologically they abandoned the gospel and the truth of scripture. They're dying out. In a generation or two, those buildings will be more bars, more museums. They'll be stores because they die because they cease to be a church. Always reforming means that as a church, we're always submitting our lives, our opinions, our views, our practices, our beliefs to the word of God. It means that following in the footsteps of the reformers, we're constantly going back to the Bible. That we hold firmly to the great truths that the reformers rediscovered and proclaimed, and we're to pass on to the next generation. See, we're not starting something new every generation. We're simply going back to the Bible, and we're holding to the truths that have been handed to us. Justification is by faith in Christ alone. That is what Semper Reformanda is about. Fighting the good fight of the faith. Guarding the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And to do this reforming work, church, we must preach the word. Yes, me as the preacher on Sundays, but this ministry of the word continues to go on throughout the whole church. And not only that, but we must be ready in season and out of season. When there's a lot of people coming and there seems to be a lot of awesome God-centered fruit, and when there's not as many. We are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Again, not easy things to do. And we're to do this not out of anger, but with patience and teaching. Teaching what? The word. This is the call of Semper Reformanda. This is why the Reformation still matters. And the work that we are still to to do is reform according to the word of God, continually, individually, and corporately. Let's pray. God, we do thank you and praise you for the, the various churchmen, men and women, leaders, pe- people who have preached the gospel, died for the word to go forth throughout all of, of history, from the first century to the second century, through the 16th century, and on even to today. Our brothers and sisters who have died for the sake of the word to go forth. We do pray for help. It is much easier to keep our mouths shut, to shrink back, to be overwhelmed by the culture and the changes that are always going on in the world. And yet the call that you have given to the church is to preach the word, to put forth the glorious reality that you are a gracious God who has made a way for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to you and to one another. And that way is exclusively only in all in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, we pray, by your spirit, through the word going forth, all for the glory of Jesus Christ in his church and throughout the world to always be reforming according to your word.
We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's great name. Amen.